0: Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Father, uh, as we jump back into this series in Hebrews, talking about how your son is greater, we're overwhelmed that you want to meet with us, that you, who is totally self-sufficient, who's infinite, who dwells in unapproachable light, says to us, come before my throne, boldly approach my throne. It's a throne of grace. And so we come right now. And we come into your presence anticipating what you might do, not just in 15 years, not just in you know, months or whatever, the next 10-year vision or five-year goals or any of that stuff that we do as an organization, but that you might do in the next 15 minutes or seconds in each one of our hearts. Do something we wouldn't expect. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As a pastor, I know that I get people that send me regularly things they're learning. And I had a friend tell me the other day that he was listening to a podcast. That's not that abnormal for people to say to me. You've got to hear this podcast. However, the podcast is about duck hunting. <laughs> I don't duck hunt, just so you know. Um, anybody who is wondering, the beard maybe threw you off, I don't know, uh, Duck Dynasty or whatever. Uh, and my friend, I, I didn't think he duck hunted either. And so I said, are you a duck hunter? And he said, no. I said, why are you listening to this duck hunting podcast? He said, I'm so interested in how in the world a duck gets one place a thousand miles away every year to the exact same location without a sign. There's no like turn right in 150 miles. See the broken down tractor. Like there's no directions. They just go. And the two words he kept emphasizing to me as he talked about this podcast were orientation and navigation. And orientation, knowing where you're at in relation to whatever it is that you're considering, uh, the center. And so, them looking at the Earth, and then, and then navigation, where you're going. And now, I'm not a duck hunter, so I couldn't relate to that, but I am a dad, and I have been on a road trip. <laughs> and in our family, being the dad and a road trip means it's my responsibility to get us from point A to point B. And about two weeks ago, we were on a road trip, we were in uh, Charleston, South Carolina area, about five and a half hours away from here, and it was my job to get us from Charleston back to North Raleigh. And so we pull out the GPS, I type in our address to our house, it says five and a half hours, estimated time of arrival, which I see as a challenge, amen. (laughs) Somebody else is with me, you know. That is not a guide. That is not just an estimation. That is, can you beat this? And so in my mind, I'm thinking, can probably do five hours. Could we possibly get it into the fours? Four and a half would be amazing. All right, and here's the deal. I saw some of you in the lobby. I saw some dads with little kids. You haven't done this quite as much yet. So I want to help you avoid rookie mistakes. Here's the key, pit stops. I mean, rest breaks. Like don't say pit stop to your wife. But in the pit stops, there's three tasks that have to be done. Restroom, food, and gas you cannot do those things at different locations okay you gonna be efficient you know park at a gas don't eat at a gas station that's also a bad choice but park at a gas station Send part of the troop over there get food meet back at this point and we're moving like that's how that needs to work so we're driving on our trip about two hours into this thing we're going up i-95 which is a terrible design by the way Two lanes? Are you kidding me? There's so many people, but whatever. We're driving on this thing. So you get an idea of my personality if you're new to the church, by the way. Patience is still a process. But um, we're driving. My wife looks at me, says the kids, we got the two littlest kids in the back seat. So they're going to have to go to the bathroom. They're going to have to eat in a little bit, which I've been married long enough. I know that means my wife is hungry. And so I start looking. Looking for exits, I'm seeing, I'm kind of mentally marking stuff. I look in the back and I ask the kids, not my wife, I said, where do you want to eat? One of my kids says Starbucks, which I think, where did I go wrong as a father? Like how did this happen? Like, What kid doesn't say McDonald's? Like, What kid doesn't say, how are you picking, are we that bougie? Like I know we live in North Raleigh, but come on. And food! Like who eats it? Well, at any rate, who picks it? I would have never picked a coffee shop as a kid. And so I'm looking though and I saw signs, exit 157 and exit 160 are both supposed to have a Starbucks. I get off at exit 157, put this in your notes today, exit 157 does not have a Starbucks. <laughs> it's one of those exits, have you ever, this happens in North Carolina because there's trees blocking the exits so you can't really see what's there, but when I got off it's farmland everywhere but there was a blue sign that didn't have labels on it, it just said food in a direction. So I drive about three miles that way, and I go, I'm done with this, because I still don't see anything. So I U-turn, we lost, I don't know, nine minutes and 40 seconds, approximately. (laughs) I hop back on, we go to exit 160, there's a big mall, there's stuff everywhere, but I don't see the Starbucks. Shanna, where's the Starbucks? 1.3 miles, about, 1.3 miles away. So we drive to the address that says it's a Starbucks, and when we pull in the parking lot, the building is this. <laughs> Only that picture is way nicer than the building we pulled into. The building we pulled into looked like it has been sun faded since about you know 1985. Like it was bad news. So I wasn't looking for scary robots and bad pizza, we were looking for Starbucks. That's not going to work. But we're by a food court for a mall. We go into the mall. It's a ghost town. Amazon, thank you very much. And so we go in there. Nobody wants to eat there. We go to the restroom. We've been here for 30 minutes and accomplished only one of the tasks. <laughs> we leave the mall. I see a Panera that has a drive through. We pull in, and God is working on my sanctification. Because there's a guy parked precariously at the speaker. You know what I mean by that? He's made his order. He hasn't pulled far enough forward for me to make my order, but he's totally capable. And you probably shouldn't honk at someone at the drive-thru. So I'm sitting there going, all right, I've been in the South long enough. I know how this works. I finally get up to the speaker and the first thing the lady says is not, welcome to Panera, it's your food's gonna take 30 minutes. And I said, without thinking, that doesn't work. (laughs) And now I've got people behind me and there's people in front of me. So then I said, you need to move some of these cars. I'm trapped, so I wasn't really. Was just like thoughts were coming out of my mouth at this moment. My 12-year-old daughter in the back seat said, "Dad, you are so selfish. You want to move all these cars just for you." From the mouths of babes, and then I said, "Yes," and we got out of there. We go to get on the expressway, and there's this guy next to me. So God's doing something. There's this guy next to me who won't let me get over. And I missed the on ramp to get back on I 95. Then I'm driving on on a road that I think I'll just turn around. It's another expressway. Next exit, five miles. Are you kidding me? (laughs) I didn't know where I was, and I had no idea where I was headed at that point. Have you ever been there? Orientation, navigation. Today in our passage of Scripture, we're going to need to know both of those things where are we, and where are we headed? I've titled the message, Where Are We Headed? It's in Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 11, Lord willing, and go all the way through, hopefully, to chapter 6 and verse 12. And then chapter 6 and verse 12, because that's where we got to in the first service, and it's really hard when you guys are at different places. And so um, just going with this travel analogy, you know that's been used in the book of Hebrews already. We've been studying through this for a little while now. And in Hebrews chapter 3, we saw it. As God alluded to, the people, these Hebrew Christians, and he talked to them about the Israelites back in the Old Testament who were led out of bondage in Egypt and led to the edge of the Promised Land. And in Hebrews chapter 3, he was talking about that, and he says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, talking about God's voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the, the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. He's talking about the Israelites there. And if you don't know the Old Testament, what happens for the Israelites is they get stuck between places. They've left bondage in Egypt, but now they're wandering in the wilderness, talk about a lack of orientation and navigation, for 40 years. And they miss out on the the promises of God, the promised land that God had for them. I read one pastor this week, and he said they were in-betweeners. They were in between experiencing salvation of being saved out of their bondage and walking in the promises. And then he talked about how a lot of Christians live that way. He said they're in between, kind of in between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. They've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. They've experienced salvation, but they're not walking in the resurrection life that's been promised to them. Where are you? For these folks, the author of Hebrews has been talking to them about how incredible Jesus is. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the high priest. He's greater than angels. And he wants to talk more about that, but he can't because of where they're at. Look at what he says. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain, but not because of the content, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled, interesting word, in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he starts off talking about, I I want to tell you more about this. Remember, he's been talking about the priesthood, how Jesus Christ is our priest. We don't need a humanly priest. Jesus Christ tore the veil. You got access to God. He is the mediator, the bridge builder, the way, the truth, and the life between you and God. No one goes to the Father except for through him. He is our priest. He's not just a priest. He's the great high priest. And what's one of the things that's great about him? He doesn't need to offer sacrifices. He is the sacrifice. Amen? He's going, then in light of that, approach the throne of grace. Boldly come before God who should annihilate you because of his righteousness and your sinfulness. But because of your high priest washing you with his blood, you can approach boldly before his throne. I want to tell you more about that, but can't. And so we take a little break in the book. He stops talking about Jesus. He stopped talking about the priesthood. He starts talking about the listeners. He said, but there's a problem. And the problem is where you're at. And what we're going to see in this passage, you can outline it multiple ways, but there's really three sections. The first is about where they're at. The next is about where God's taking them. And the last part is about how to get there. And that's going to be our outline for today's message. And I'm just going to ask you three questions for the outline today. The first question is this. Where are you today? Where are you with God now? It's a good question to ask yourself periodically just throughout life. It was Socrates who once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. The Apostle Paul says it this way in the New Testament. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And so the first question is just what Paul alludes to there in in chapter 13 and verse 5 of, of Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is... Are you in the faith? That's the most important question you'll ever answer in your life. Are you in a faith, a trust, a dependence relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you placed your faith in him for your salvation? You're banking every not on your church attendance, not that you're tuning in today, not that you've been baptized or said some words at some religious gathering, raised a hand, did whatever, confirmed, none of that stuff, but in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Not that you just believe facts, you've placed your dependence on that. That's the, that's the first question. That's the starting point. Okay, that's not the end all of your spiritual journey. That's the beginning of your spiritual journey. And then once you're in that relationship, where are you? Where are you orientation in relation to Jesus Christ today? Because as a Christian, there's lots of ways you can go. Remember in this book, he says in in chapter 2, don't drift. If you're kind of in neutral with Jesus, you don't drift toward Jesus. You drift away from Jesus. Are you drifting? He says, come back. He's got speaking in chapter 3. He says, do not harden your heart. If I speak to you, some of you, you know what God's been telling you to do. You're resisting him, so you're not drifting from him. You might even say you're running from him. And so your heart gets harder and harder. And like when you do work in the yard, you get calluses. Your heart's getting more calloused. Some of you are experiencing abundant life and joy overflowing. Some of you are going through difficult seasons, but God's meeting you in those moments. Some of you are in a dry place spiritually. Some of you are radically stepping out by faith and risking in your perspective, not from God's sovereign, but from your perspective, taking risk because God told you to do something and you're doing it. Where are you? Do you know the problem with self-evaluation? Is we usually think that we're better off than we actually are. Most people, like you compare yourselves, you go, well, I'm doing better than that person. And we look at like their worst characteristic and our best characteristic and go, I'm doing pretty good. And I think that's probably what happens to these Hebrew Christians here. If you just said, hey, how are you doing? They're probably, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, we have trusted Jesus and their temptations and things are hard and we don't love the government right now. Things are, persecution is starting to happen for them. And, but Jesus, or uh, the author says here, here's where they're at with Jesus. I'd love to tell you more about Jesus, but it's hard to explain not because it's hard to explain as a teacher, not because it's hard to explain the format, not because uh, my voice isn't working, not because of you guys won't show up at some gathering, no, because you don't listen. You've become dull of hearing. You might underline that as we're walking through this passage. Why? For though by this time you ought to be teachers, that's how we know, because you're not where you should be, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the doctrines or oracles of God. And he uses an analogy, you need milk, not solid food. So in other words, you're stuck in a developmental stage spiritually that you should, because of time, already be passed at this point. So he's saying to them, evaluate yourself. Problem, they probably think they're doing better than they are. It's like the other day I went to the dentist just for a six month you know, cleaning and checkup, and I've been going to the same dentist for a while, I don't know if this is how it works at all dentists, but at mine, typically what happens, the dental hygienist comes out, takes me into this room, you know, we talk for a couple minutes, say, hey, what are you doing this weekend? What are you doing this weekend? And then she does the talking for the rest of the time because my mouth is wide open and she's staring into my soul with bright lights on my face, and it's just like that. And, but then what happens is at some moment, unpredictable moment in the meeting, the dentist shows up and she's doing all the work, but he'll ask a few questions. And one of the questions he asked me was, how are your teeth? And I'm thinking, isn't that why I'm paying you? Like, why are, why are you asking me this question? And so then he starts looking at my mouth and he says, yeah, you don't have any cavities, things are looking pretty good, and I can file these ones down if you'd like me to. I'm like, file these down? What are you talking about? He goes, there's nothing wrong, like you're not, there's nothing with your health, it's just a cosmetic thing. I'm like, cosmetic thing? He goes, I could just file them down if it makes you feel insecure. I wasn't feeling insecure until you started talking about this. <laughs> he said, these front ones, are just a little bit snaggled. I go, did my dentist just call me Snaggletooth? <laughs> like as I'm sitting there. And all I want now at this moment is a mirror because he's seeing something I apparently am not seeing, apparently my wife should have been telling him about it a long time ago. And then he says, well, you just think about it, you know, I'll do it for free if you want me to. Now I know he's not trying to upsell me. Like I got a serious problem here and he's fixing our community one smile at a time. And so he filed my teeth that day and people after the first service go, let me see. I was, no, but I didn't know I had a problem until he pointed it out. Maybe you've had that before. You go get a physical and you're like, I'm doing great. And then he tells you, well, you're overweight and you got this mole, and how about you stop? And you're like, ah, uh, I almost felt pretty good before I came here. <laughs> or you take a test in school and you're like, I'm going to ace this test. 25? Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh. I have a friend who is on social media, he used to play in the NFL. He posted, uh, he's 6'3", and he made the mistake of going to the, one of those websites that tells you your ideal weight. So you used to play in the NFL. He's 6'3". It told him that his ideal weight is between 148 pounds and 200 pounds. His post said, my head weighs 48 pounds, this isn't happening. <laughs> so, and some of you know what that experience is like, but here we're talk- he's talking to them spiritually. If we judge misjudge ourselves intellectually and physically like that, what do you think we do spiritually? You want an example of this? Go to Luke chapter 18, there's a story of a guy who's very self-confident. It's probably one of the reasons why he's rich. And he comes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says basically to him, be perfect. And he goes, I do that. Talk about unaware. And then Jesus says to him an interesting thing. He says, go sell all of your possessions, give the money to the poor, and then you can come follow me. Now, you've got to ask yourself, if you're studying the Bible, is he contradicting all of the rest of his teaching, his own teaching about how to have eternal life, and saying that you can buy eternal life? Is he contradicting the rest of the New Testament and telling this guy, hey, you know what, for everybody else, I'm the way, but for you, you can buy the way? No. He knows this guy's heart, and he's given him an evaluation that he can't get on his own, and he's saying, you love money more than you love God, and the guy walks away sad, and we don't know if he ever follows Jesus. But he had to have that sobering wake up call. That's what's happening for these Hebrew Christians. The author here is saying to them, by this time, and that's the key to understanding this. He tells them, milk, not solid food, as if solid food's a thing, but you don't give a baby a steak. I don't want to say that some of you here are new believers, new Christians. You should be spiritually immature. You do need to learn the basics of the faith. But the key to this phrase is, it says, by this time, by this time you ought to be, this should be, teachers. But you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Now, I believe that if you ask them these basic principles, they could tell them back to you. This is not an intellectual thing, and we'll see from the full context. This is actually a moral thing for them. There's nothing wrong with being immature. Just don't get that. But he says here next, you need milk, not solid food. There's something wrong with being immature at the wrong stage. By this time, you ought to be. One of my kids showed me a video. She's about 12 years old. She is 12 years old. Uh, she's 12 years old. She's in the audience today, so I got to get this right. Uh, and she says, um, "Dad, look at this video of me from when I was like, she was like five or six. One of her friends sent it to her. She didn't have any teeth on the front, she's sucking on her fingers. She's acting like a kid. It was really cute. If on her wedding day, she's still acting like that, that's not cute. That's a problem. Not my problem. It's going to be your husband's problem in a couple minutes. But it's a problem." If a 40-year-old man comes into the service and he's sucking on a baby bottle, that's not cute. Newborn baby, oh, look at your cute little baby. All it does is cry, wet itself. But it's cute. An adult, not cute. Key phrase, by this time, you ought to be teachers. This doesn't mean that all of them should be preaching from a stage or teaching a Sunday school class. But every Christian should be a teacher. The Great Commission says, go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey, not just know, obey everything I've taught you. Every follower of Christ is called to be a teacher. Doesn't mean you have to stand on the stage, doesn't mean you've got to give some lecture, five points, three lessons, four keys, no. But everything you know about following Jesus, you're supposed to be teaching that to somebody else. You ought to be at that stage, he's telling them at this point. The problem is, it's like Pastor Dave says. Pastor Dave, maybe you've heard him say this statement before. And he knows better than, today's his birthday. He's older than me. He's older than the rest of us. (laughs) Love you, Pastor Dave. Just kidding. But from his experience, he says a lot of people grow old in Christ, but they don't grow up in Christ. And what he's talking about when he says that statement is exactly what this passage is talking about. It's possible to be a Christian for decades and still be a baby Christian, and that's not okay. And what it's saying here in this passage is the reason why this happens. Look at verse 11. we got a lot to say to you, but it's hard to explain, and here's your problem. You've become dull of hearing. You weren't always this way. You've become dull of hearing. Hmm. What's he saying here? and I think about it like this, imagine with me for a moment, this isn't trying to be prophetic either, but imagine with me for a moment that things go really sideways in our world. This could happen, but I'm not not scaring you, I'm not trying to scare you. And say somebody hacks into our power grid, and all the power goes down. And then because the power's down, gas stations don't work, and so you don't have gas. You run out of gas in your car, and you don't know what's going to happen. And maybe you're mad at the government and you're like, they're taxing us a bunch, but they're not really helping us much. And so you're upset at the way that they're leading things. And then you don't have the resources you used to have. And you decide you're still going to come to church on Sunday. But you got to walk. And then you tell your neighbor, hey, I'm going to church. My family, we're going to church. Do you want to come with us? I heard there's going to be this guy there, and he's going to know what to say to us. I'm going to say we're bringing in a guest speaker, and he's some famous guest speaker, and lots of people want to hear him. So you're like, our church is having this guy come. We want to go see him. Okay, will You come, and you decide to walk to church. Now, I text messaged somebody in our church this week that drives from Apex every week. I said, how long does it take you to drive to church? She said, 22 minutes. I was like, all right, you got it down. Not 20 minutes, 22 minutes, right? Say, so can you put in your GPS how long it would take you to walk to church? And she said, six hours and 57 minutes. It's like, all right. So some of you are closer than Apex, so maybe it takes you three hours, maybe it takes you 15 minutes, depends where you're at. But you walk to church and you come, and imagine there's this guy, and he's just telling stories. He just keeps telling stories. And so you get some guys sitting up on the stage, and we're on power, so maybe there's an emergency generator, so we got one, one guy gets a light, right? That's how it works at church. And uh, he starts telling stories, and so he tells a story, but you don't know what they mean. He's just kind of, oh, it's fun to listen to, but what are you talking about? And he says, you know, in a situation like this, where you can't really work anymore because everybody was Zooming in and teleconferencing and doing all that stuff, and there's no power, uh, there was one guy that was a really hard worker in our community, and he had saved up in his retirement account $100,000, but it wasn't enough money to live on for the rest of his life, and so he needed to make an investment. And so, what he did is he divided up into four segments and he made four different investments. So, $25,000 each. And the first investment was a friend told him about a great bet. It was a surefire bet. And it was a gamble. He knew that. There was a risk. And he took the bet and he lost. So, he lost $25,000. The next one seemed like a better thing because the money was so easy to get and it was coming back fast and so he gave $25,000 and he he got $35,000 back a couple weeks later and and then he gave the $35,000 back and then he got $50,000 a couple weeks later and then he gave the money back and things got tough and the guy who was making the investments went to jail. It was a Ponzi scheme. So now he's lost $50,000. And he's frustrated with it and he's angry at God and so what he decides to do is eat, drink and be merry. And he starts wasting his money on worldly living and he wastes the next $25,000. So he's wasted $75,000 up to this point because of bad decisions. But then he makes a, an investment, $25,000. That, it's a great investment and it returns 30, 60, a hundredfold his money. And the teacher tells that story and then without any explanation, walks away. And as he's leaving, one of the elders comes to him and says, Hey, uh, great story. Thanks for sharing that. But nobody knows what you're talking about. And then the speaker says, Good. That was my point. I tell stories so that people don't get it. And then the elder says, It's working. (laughs) And then he says, But because you're seeking it out, let me tell you what it means. Uh, The money is actually God's word. And the investment are the people. And some people... Uh, they're like rocky soil, and as soon as they hear the scriptures, Satan takes it away. It's a bad bet. And then there's some people that it seems like it seems like it takes root, but it's really shallow. And so as soon as things get tough, it's gone. And then there's some people. There's some people that are just so in love with this world that the worries of this world and the desire for money quenches out God's word, and it does not. But there's some people that it's a good investment. But but why are you telling stories that people aren't going to get? See, Jesus is the one who does this. And people were upset with the government because they were overtaxing them. And they weren't helping them. And so they were hopeful that Jesus would overthrow them. But that wasn't why Jesus came. And Jesus is telling stories, but they're not getting it. But crowds of people are walking hours and hours to hear Jesus speak. And he sits on the edge of a boat. And he tells them these agricultural analogies. And he walks away. And his disciples come to him and go, why are you telling them stories? And he says this. Matthew chapter 13, verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. When I tell stories in a sermon, it's so that you'll understand. Jesus is saying, I tell stories so they won't understand. Okay. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. Wait, you were talking about hearing, but now you're talking about hearts. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. What we see here is that Jesus makes it really clear that hearing is a heart issue. Today, Hebrews chapter three, if the Holy Spirit speaks do not harden your heart as in the day of rebellion. He doesn't say unclog your ears. And what we see here, many people when they hear this milk and solid food are like, I want the deeper things of God. I'm ready to move on to the tougher teachings. He's going, no, this is a moral issue. In fact, one pastor I was reading this week, his name is John Piper, says, the reason why some of you can't understand doctrines like election is because of the stuff you watch on TV. He says, the reason why some of you can't understand things like the second coming is because of your shady business practices. The reason why some of you can't, and it's because of the sexual immorality in your life, like you're not getting these teachings, and it's not an issue of understanding because here's the reality. I've read before, and I don't know if this is still true or not, that in our community we have more PhDs per capita than anywhere else in America. Intellect is not the issue. I have read books by guys who don't even claim to be Christians that explain the Bible better than a lot of people who claim to be Christians. This is not an issue of information. See, what happens is when your information exceeds your transformation, best case scenario, stagnation. Most people, hardened heart and drifting or running from Jesus. Where are you? That's where they're at. They've become dull of hearing. So where's God leading you? And that's what he tells them next in chapter 6. Therefore, therefore, because of what he's just said, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, and before he's called these, these foundational things, the basics of the faith, these elementary doctrine of Christ, and go on to maturity, okay? So verses 11 through 14 were immaturity, that's where you are, milk, not solid food, but here he's talking about maturity. Not laying again a foundation, and here he talks about what these basics are, what these elementary doctrines are. Repentance from dead works and, and a faith toward God and of instructions about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Chapter six, verses one through three is a call to move forward. He says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. It's not that he wants you to forget the gospel. Listen, I hope you never get over the gospel. I hope it wrecks you that God would pick you, a sinner like you, and want you to then teach people to obey everything he taught you. That's an amazing truth. Amen. I hope you never get over that. And he's not saying that you should forget that. He's saying build on that. It's foundational, and you, should, you only have to build the foundation once. You don't you have to keep rebuilding the foundation. And he goes through, and he says what some, some of these things are. He says these elementary doctrines. Elementary doctrines, some people talk about it like it's the ABCs of the faith. Think about your ABCs when you learned how to read, or think about some of you have taught your kids how to read. I remember teaching my kids how to read. You, first you grab a book, and you show them, and they just, they just see pictures, right? And you point is like, ball, horse, horse. No, it's a dog, but yeah, the drawings yee, questionable. Whatever, and you go through the thing and you try and get them. To, it's just pictures, and we're going to see when we get to Hebrews chapter nine. The Old Testament is pictures that point us to Christ, and and, and then and then we start seeing uh, letters. Right? They learn their ABCs, but you don't forget your ABCs. You just start learning how to put those letters together so that they can see words. And when I would read with my kids, I'd read, and then when I come to a word they know, I'd pause and let them say the word, and eventually they get phrases, and eventually they get sentences, and eventually they read the book which also tests my sanctification because it takes them way longer than it takes me. And I'm ready for them to go to bed at that moment. <laughs> but they can do it and they start reading books and then they start understanding concepts and they, they move on to deeper, greater things. What he's saying here is you can't move on. We've got to keep going over the ABCs. You're not learning how to read in the faith here. You keep going over the ABCs of the faith. And what is he talking about? Well, he says here uh, these repentance from dead works. That's talking about when you're trying to turn from the things that you were doing that you thought was going to earn you salvation. And so we're going to see in the book of Hebrews, you were never saved by the blood of bulls and goats. That never took away your sin. It pointed you to Jesus Christ who would deal with your sin. It says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove sin, says in Hebrews. So stop, stop doing that repentance over and over again. The way that we see this in church, and I'll just tell you from my 15 years of experience, is I'll have people that'll say, hey, if you want to trust Christ, raise your hand. Some guy will raise his hand in the back row. So you want to trust Christ, and come forward. And then the same guy will come forward. Then he'll be a Christian for like six months. He gets baptized. And then, you know, a year later, I'm like, hey, if you want to trust Christ, then same invitation I gave to other people. I'm not really giving it to him anymore, but he comes back up. I'm like, all right, I've talked to you about trusting Christ three times. And I know we're Baptists, and you're supposed to just like count everything. But this feels wrong. Um, We're doing this wrong. If you think you need to, every time you do something, a big sin, you've got to then become a Christian again. What we're doing is we keep trying to lay the same foundation over and over again. No, no, let's move on. Let's get that nailed down and then move on to more things. And so here it talks about like some other things that are still basics of the faith. Baptism, we've talked about that over the last couple of weeks. And what baptism is, is a repentance and, and, and identifying the message of repentance. That I've turned from my sins. I'm walking in a life with Christ. I'm buried with Christ on baptism. Raised to walk in a new way of life. Basically, laying on of hands. It's probably alluding to when they would set people aside for the mission or a special empowerment for the mission. And, and it says here, in, in a resurrection and the judgment of the dead, yep, Jesus is coming back, he wins in the end, and everybody's going to be judged at some point. Like, okay, those things are true. Let's stop having to talk about those things so you can move on to what? What else? Maturity. Okay, so what's maturity? And what most of us then automatically fill in, and I don't know if it's because of Raleigh or American culture or what it is, is we think, what's the more information? That's not what this passage says. See, I can talk to you for a long time about some book that I've read about what Christian maturity is, who cares? If that's what your pastor's giving you and you're watching online, what does the Bible say? What does the text say? What does this passage say maturity is? Because if God's speaking to us through his word, the answer's gonna come from his word. So what is maturity? Look at the passage it told us. It said what maturity is, Just go back a couple verses in uh, verses 13 and 14. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. Okay, we'll come back to that word. And the word of righteousness, since he's a child. Okay, so the maturity must mean being able to outline the Old Testament. Some survey of what's happening. Or knowing Greek. Or diagramming sentences. But solid food is for the mature. Okay, who are they? Here they are. For those who have their powers of discernment trained, interesting word, by constant practice, not a game, not a game, not a game, practice. Those of you who get it, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) To distinguish good from evil. This is why you hear a pastor say, uh, the reason why you can't understand the Bible is because of the immorality in your life. Because this is a morality issue. This is not an information issue. Most of you, uh, if asked biblical questions, know the right answers. And in a church setting, you think in your head, here's how I'm going to live my life. But then you know what happens? You pull up behind some person at a Panera, and he's parked precariously. And your words and thoughts about him are not, you are an image bearer of God, and he's got a plan for you in this moment. It's get out of my way! Because you're practicing things, you're being trained. Some of you are like, I want to be a man of integrity, and then you got to do your taxes. Some of you, hey, I'm, I'm going to be a purity, and then you go to the gym. It's like constant training to be skilled in the word is not to know more information about the word, it's to obey what you've been told. And he's saying, you can't, we can't move on from the ABCs because you can't get past, you're not obeying the ABCs. So we've got to keep laying the foundation because you don't really have a foundation here. And that's going to lead into a warning we're going to talk about in just a minute. But I love these words that it says here about the training and the practice and the skill that's here. There are so many people in our community that know the Bible so well. I talk about this being our 15-year anniversary. I remember when I first came to this community, I wanted to know what is the church world like here before we even started a church. And so I asked different pastors, you know, Crossroads pastor and uh, Providence pastor, David Horner at the time, different, different churches in town. Can I just come to the different events your church has, and I wanna see who some of the people are and what they're like. And so I started going to Bible studies, community Bible studies at a hotel, different Bible studies around town. And do you know what I found? It was the same people at all the Bible studies. It didn't matter what church I went to, the same people were there. It's like, don't you go to that other church? And it was weird for me as somebody coming from outside this community. And so I started saying a statement that was offensive to most Raleighites. The statement was, you know, there's the Amalekites and Israelites and the Raleighites. And, so, and then I started saying a statement People in this community are over-churched and under-Jesus. And what I was saying is the information you have exceeds the life you're experiencing. That's a problem. Because when your information exceeds your transformation, best case, you have stagnation. And so here he's saying it should change your power the powers of discernment you have with things that are right and wrong, Because you've practiced the scriptures when you've been put in the situation. I'm reading a book right now, I haven't read the whole thing, about a Navy SEAL named Mike Day. The reason why he is uh, famous, his book's called Perfectly Wounded. He's famous because of a mission that he was leading uh, to take out a high-level Al-Qaeda member. And he was, I think it was 24, 26 men. Some of them were informants, Iraqi informants. Uh, Some of them were SEALs. And this group of Al Qaeda had shot down a, a helicopter that had some of our Marines in it. And so they were going to capture the guy who was in charge of that mission. But he was the first one to go into a room that had four terrorists in it that were holding AK 47s, and they began shooting him. He said, When the first shot hit me, it felt like a sledgehammer, it hit my body armor. And then I realized I was being shot, as he was shot about 11 more times at that moment. So my first thought was, God, get me home to my girls. He said, after that, I became angry. And he said it was all muscle memory at that moment. What happens is he takes a nine millimeter, that part of the pistol, the grip was shot off of, and he doesn't start playing with it and wondering, how does this work? Is the safety on? He says, muscle memory. He eliminates three of those terrorists in that moment. The fourth one sets off a hand grenade. He ends up eliminating that guy, wakes up from the, uh, being unconscious from the hand grenade, uh, the shock of that and some of the shrapnel damage. He ended up being shot 27 times. 11 times in his body armor, 16 times, and everywhere but his head. He said, You can basically pick a spot on my body, and if you put your finger in it, you'll find a bullet hole. And he survived, and one of the doctors told him, you were, It was a miracle. You were perfectly wounded, the places you were shot. He was able to walk out of there and walk himself to the evacuation helicopter. Pretty amazing. But you know what got me? was thinking, You did all of that by muscle memory? He got a silver heart of heroism. And uh, listen to what it says on it. It says Despite multiple gunshot wounds, he continued to engage the enemy, transitioning to his pistol after the loss of his primary weapon, eliminating three enemy personnel without injury to the women and children in close proximity to the enemy personnel. Additionally, his decisive leadership and mental clarity in the face of his injuries ensured the success of the mission, what, it was a success, which resulted in the destruction of four enemy personnel and the recovery of sensitive United States military equipment and valuable intelligence concerning enemy activity in the area. From muscle memory? Listen, in my knowledge of who's attended our church over 15 years, there's only been a couple Navy SEALs, so I'm going to assume most of you are not. I don't know what you know about SEAL training. I've read some books, I've watched some documentaries. I still don't know it. I've seen and heard and read and talked to some people, but I'm gonna tell you this, SEAL training is not basic training. All of our soldiers go through basic training. I'm not saying it's bad, but SEAL training is different. How many times do you think he was put in a situation where he thought he was gonna die or he was totally exhausted and he had to make life and death decisions in less than a second? He said it was muscle memory. (laughs) And what does it say here? You want advanced training? You want to know more about God? You want to be mature? The powers of discernment come by training, by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's a moral issue. I love this quote that I read a few years ago by Mark Batterson. He says, it's a lot easier to act like a Christian, which is what we do in church, than to react like a Christian, which is what happens in life here in our passage. He wants us to move to maturity, and it's gonna happen by putting the truth into practice in our real lives. And then I think this next part of the passage is ironic. I don't know if it's just God's sense of humor. I don't know if it's just something like a Bible nerd like me has or what, but this next part of the passage, many people say is the hardest part of the entire New Testament. That's funny to me because the passage started with, I wanna teach you some deep things, but you can't handle them. Oh, maybe it's just me. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Because most people argue about what this passage means. You'll know what I'm talking about when I read this. Look what it says. For it's impossible, okay? It's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So some people teach that this passage means you can lose your salvation. If, if, I'm not saying it does, but if that's what this passage teaches, then do you know what that means? You can't get it back. Did you see what the passage says? If you've done these things, been enlightened, tasted the Holy Spirit, experienced the power... And then you fall away, you can't. It's impossible for you to repent. You can't turn them back to restoration because they'll have to crucify Jesus again. I think that's one of the dangers of this passage is I know a lot of people. I've met them, they've attended our church, I've talked to them in the lobbies, they believe that you can lose your salvation. I think that many of those people are Christians, they're part of the family of God, and we just disagree on this, this issue, but I feel bad because I don't know anybody that actually teaches you can lose your salvation and not get it back. Most people teach you can lose your salvation, but then hurry up and turn back, and it's a scare tactic. And I don't think that's what this passage is teaching. Some people think this is a hypothetical situation, and it's just if the war to happen, it's kind of a scare tactic of the author. I don't think that's what's happening either. And I think there's a great danger in our churches that some of you have been taught a trite saying That causes you to miss the weightiness of this passage. And it's a statement like this. You've ever had a pastor tell you this? Once saved, always saved. (laughs) Yep, so some of you hear this passage and you go, Well, it doesn't apply to me. Are you sure? Are you sure? Because I think this passage is a legitimate warning. And I think it's a warning of of a, a group of people we don't like to talk about because a lot of us are a part of. Look at that description. It's hard to say these are non-believers, right? You've once been enlightened. You've tasted the gift. You've shared in the Holy Spirit. You've tasted the goodness of God and the powers of the age to come. And then you've fallen away. Okay? So who is that? The crux of understanding this passage is deciding, is this talking about a believer or a non-believer? That's the key. There are multiple interpretations. Most say it's hypothetical or you can lose your salvation or you can't lose your salvation. And so it doesn't really apply to us. Well, I don't think any of that's right. I think this is a real warning. I don't think you can lose your salvation because the Bible says, in Hebrews it says four times that something's impossible. One of them's here. It's impossible that if these things are true and you turn away, for you to come back. Okay, that's one of the impossibilities. You know what another impossibility is? We already talked about one. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away your sin. Okay. It also says, and we're going to get to this later, it's impossible for God to lie. Okay, I don't think this passage is teaching contrary to the rest of the New Testament, which says that you're not in charge of whether you lose your salvation or not. God is. Passages like this, Philippians chapter one and verse six, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And it doesn't say as long as you cooperate. <laughs> I'll tell you from experience, it's a lot less painful if you cooperate. But it doesn't depend on your cooperation. Here's a passage we like to go to in Romans chapter 8, incredible passage of Scripture, 8.1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The end of chapter 8, nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. Oh, not even you? You can't separate you from the love of Jesus? It's impossible for God to lie, and that's what he said. Here's some passages for those of you who want to study this more or need the assurance of your salvation. First um, Peter chapter 1. Talking about salvation, says, and we're jumping into a context here, obviously, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Wait, you don't keep it? It's kept in heaven for you? Who by God's power are being guarded? So you're being guarded by God's power, so this is out of your power, you didn't save you, so then you can't unsave you. By God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Jude only has one chapter, so Jude chapter one, verse 24 says this, Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of the glory of the great joy, with great joy. Or John, this is a popular one when we talk about assurance of salvation. Notice it doesn't say that God's given you temporary life. He's given you eternal life. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. There was one impossible verse in uh, Hebrews that I didn't mention to you. It's Hebrews chapter 11. It's impossible to please God apart from faith. You wouldn't even have faith if God didn't do the impossible in your life and resurrected you from the dead. You were spiritually dead, separated from him. He gave you faith. Now you believe in him. He's the one who did all that. You're not saved by your works. It's the gift of God. Faith is a gift from God. So you can't boast. So he's done the impossible. It's impossible for him to lie. It's impossible for you to be saved apart from faith. And he guards your salvation. So he's the one doing the work. So who's he talking to? I think there are people that experience the power of God, that experience the power of the age to come, that get a taste of the Holy Spirit, that are not regenerate, that are not Christians. If you want to argue about that, um, please come ready to talk about Judas. But the New Testament says, John 6, he's a devil. He is a son of perdition, Matthew. It was better that he was never born. Whoa. That doesn't sound like somebody who's experiencing the glory of God for all of eternity. But yet he walked with Jesus for years. He taught about Jesus. Led other people to Jesus. Did miracles in the name of Jesus. Yeah, but isn't it Jesus that says in Matthew chapter 7, oh, there's going to be people on the day of judgment that say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles and teach? He says, I never knew you. This is a real warning to real people that is a group of people we oftentimes don't want to talk about because you know what the American church wants to do? Just come, everybody be friendly, it'll be okay. And we think that success is based on how many people fill up a room. We're trying to fill up heaven. So if you're in a room, that doesn't do us any good. Your heart needs to be transformed. And that's where he's leading you. And he's leading you ultimately to maturity. But warning, there's some people that it's going to look like, and it's not real, are you those people? Where are you? Where are you headed? And then finally, how do you get there? And he tells us in these last verses how to get there. Verses 7 through 12. For the the land that has drunk the rain often falls on it and produces a crop, that's fruit, It's kind of like the uh, parable in Matthew chapter 13 of the good soil. To those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from it. But if it bears thorns and thistles, and so the water, God continues to bless, he continues to pour out, it is worthless and near being cursed. And its end is to be burned, that's judgment, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, and so I don't think he's talking about them losing their salvation because one of the greatest verses of assurance happens in Hebrews chapter 6, and most people never read this far. That we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. So Mark's foundational and mature. For God is not unjust. And so God's the one who does this to overlook your work. And so he sees the fruit, love. They'll know you are his disciples by the way you love one another. That you may have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So they love and they've been loving And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the same, the full assurance, full assurance, full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish. That word sluggish is the same word that was in chapter 5 and verse 11, that you're dull of hearing. So you won't be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Be diligent in your doing, diligent in your listening. What's he saying? Don't harden your hearts. And so what do we do? He said, follow the examples of those who went ahead of you. He's setting us up for Hebrews chapter 11, which talks about people who walked by faith. Moses left a palace, forsake this world for the sake of walking in God's truth. And he says, because of the Christ. How did Moses even know who Christ was? We're going to spend the whole summer in Hebrews chapter 11. And what you're going to see is, living by faith is banking your life on the promises of God. And so you've got Abraham... Abraham, I want you to walk and I'll tell you when you get there. And then we're told to make disciples, but most of us are going, well, what curriculum do I teach? And how do I do this? And what's it going to look like? And what am I going to say? And what if they say this? And he, just go. Abraham didn't even know where he was going. Go. You ought to be te- You want to apply today's passage? You want to know what the step of faith God's telling you to do? Every Christian, he's telling you, go make disciples. What does that mean? Teach them to obey everything you know. What does it look like? Try it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Many, many here want to walk by faith. But we can't. We cannot do it on our own. And I feel like the, the dad who brings his, his son to you who's demon possessed and he's tried everything, gone to doctors and tried rituals and, and done everything he knew to do, and it's not working. says, If you can help, will you help? We've got major problems in the church in America. But you've given us the solution. And it's us. You want to change us. God, will you bring revival in our hearts? Will you change us? And, And you go, will you believe me? I want to believe. Will you help my unbelief? We want to trust you, but we need you in order to be able to trust you. Will, you. will you do an empowering in us? I pray if there's anybody here that needs to trust you as Savior today, that you'd save them, they'd call upon you to forgive them of their sins and be their salvation. And I pray, Father, that those of you who know you and they've already been walking with you, they wouldn't keep going back to that same thing, but they would move on to the next thing. That We begin to obey and learn, keep training us. We hate the testing, but we need it. Father, keep training us to walk with you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.